Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Good morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And it's page 953 on that red Bible. Today is a special day in the life of Jacobswell Church because we will be ordaining and installing four new elders and two new deacons who have been trained, who have been examined by the elders, and who have been elected by the congregation. And so after the sermon, uh, we will ordain and install elders at this first service, and then at the second service, we will ordain and install deacons. And then after that, we'll do communion, final song if we have time, and close with a benediction as normal. Uh, Today's passage is very fitting for this occasion because Paul is speaking to Christians about their service to Christ's church. And while this sermon is primarily directed towards those who are becoming elders and deacons, this biblical passage is directed towards all Christians. And so it is applicable to every single one of us as we consider our role in the life of of Christ's church. So let's read together uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 5 and read through chapter 4, verse 2. This is God's word. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord, bless us with your word. Work in our hearts and in our lives to show us how we were created to live in obedience to you for your glory and for our joy. Show us this this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This past October, you all were very generous for Pastor Appreciation Month. And so Trish and I got a big donation. I don't know if it's a donation, a big gift. And the elder said, use this on a vacation. And so last week we did. We went on a cruise. And cruises are amazing. Um, You give a little bit of money and then you show up and you get on the on the ship and you don't have to think about everything, anything. It's like hitting the easy button. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. You don't have to worry about your entertainment. You don't have to worry about your transportation. You don't have to worry about even cleaning up. I mean, there's no trash cans and people are always there picking up your trash and taking it away and getting it clean. I mean, going on a ship is absolutely amazing. At our best guess, one of our children ate 27 ice cream cones over the course of this five-day cruise. If you're trying to do the math, that is over five a day. Every evening around 6 p.m., I would say, all right, kids, we gather back and we need to go eat. And so we gather around 6 p.m. and say, all right, it's time to go eat dinner. And they say, Dad, I haven't been hungry for four days. I've been eating on something. I know, but we got to eat because there's entertainment tonight. Cruises are amazing. We just give a little bit of money. We show up. They feed us, they entertain us, they take care of us, and we just get to relax. And that's wonderful on a cruise, but the problem with the cruise is when you come home from the cruise and the children's expectations don't change. And so nine o'clock last night, one of my kids is saying, mom, can you cook me dinner? And she says, what do you think this is, a cruise? What is even more problematic is when we treat the church like a cruise. When we come into the church, you see, it's great to be a consumer on the cruise. I mean, that's what we do. We go to have fun and to enjoy and we pay for it. It's great. But sometimes our mindset when we come to the church is as consumers. We give a little bit of money. They entertain us. They clean up after us. They feed us a very little bit. And then we walk away, right? And yet, 
in today's passage and really throughout the New Testament, God makes it so crystal clear that we cannot come to his church as a consumer. You cannot obey a good half of the New Testament and simply come as a consumer to church. You are called to come and be contributed to the church because we are not a cruise. We are a family. We are the family of God. And as we we serve Christ's church, as we serve the family of God, it is honoring to God as our father. But it is also, it is also a service to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the kingdom of God. And so if you claim to be a Christian, let me ask you these questions in regards to your service to the church. With, with these questions in mind about how are we to serve the church, the questions are, what are our titles? What are our tasks? And what is our treasure as we serve Christ's church? What are our titles, our tasks, and our treasure? Now, we got a lot to get through if you look in the bulletin, and so let's jump right in. First, what are our titles? If you look in the scriptures, because we're thinking about ordination today, and you look at the word elder, in the Greek it's presbyteros, from which we get the term Presbyterian. And these are men in the New Testament uh, that are also called overseers. And Paul goes and he plants churches and he establishes elders wherever he plants churches to oversee the local church. And we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those who serve as elder well, who rule well, are, are worthy of double honor. And so, so they are, elders are called to serve, to oversee the church, and they are worthy of honor. The Greek word for deacon is diakonos. And that is translated deacon, obviously. It's also translated table waiter. Like if you go to a restaurant and you have a waitress or a waiter, that is a deacon according to the New Testament definition of it in a way. Um, Sometimes it's translated as minister. But most broadly, the term deacon simply means servant, okay? And what makes it so interesting is how Paul refers to himself and to Apollos. Paul is an elder in the church. He calls himself an elder in the church. That is his his position within the church. Apollos is as well, but Paul does something very interesting here in verse five. Look at verse five with me. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And the answer is they are elders in the church. The Corinthians had mistaken them as celebrity preachers in the church, okay? But notice how Paul corrects that. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? He says, servants. That word in Greek is diakonos, the word used for deacon. And so what Paul is making crystal clear here is that whether you are a deacon or whether you are an elder, whether you serve in children's ministry, whether you cut up the bread into little pieces for communion, whether you stack chairs, whether you welcome people, no matter what you do within the church, you are called to be a servant. That is one of your titles. You are a servant of Christ to one another. Servants own nothing. (laughs) Servants are not in charge. Servants follow their master's command. All right, so verse five, let's start at the beginning again. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then to drive home this point, Paul uses an agricultural illustration. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so what was Paul's role as a servant in Christ's body? His role was to plant. 
literally. <laughs> he was a church planter. He went throughout the world planting churches, proclaiming the gospel, establishing elders, and moving on to plant another church. What about Apollos? What was his role in the church? He was a waterer. He would teach the church. He would help them grow in the image of Christ. But these were their different roles, but they were both servants. Paul was a planter. Apollos was a waterer. Let me ask you, what is your role in Christ's church? How has God gifted you and interested you in Christ's church to serve Christ's church? For the men today, it is in the role of elder or deacon, but what about you? How has God gifted you? How has God impassioned you to serve the church of Christ, either just locally here at Jacobsville Church or at large? How has God equipped you? Is it as a prayer warrior? Is it with hospitality, with women's ministry, with nursery, with all sorts of ways that are possible? How has God called you to serve in his church? Paul continues to give us perspective on our roles. Verse 7, he says, So neither he who plants, which is Paul, or he who waters, which was Apollos, is anything, but only, only God who gives the growth. And then listen closely to this. This is so extremely important. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Paul and Apollos are united to Christ. And because they are united to Christ, they are united to one another and they are one. And it continues, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And then hear closely, for we are God's, it doesn't say workers, it says fellow workers. Paul is driving home the point that Paul and Apollos are not on separate teams. They are not in separate camps. They are on the same team proclaiming the same king to all who will hear and listen. We have different roles as servants of Christ in the church, but we are all on the same team serving the same master, proclaiming the same Lord within the same kingdom. And then verse 9 at the end is this really important transitory statement. He says, you are God's field, God's building. This really is the summary of this chapter. The first half, Paul uses this illustration of them as a building, as a field, excuse me. It's an agricultural illustration. But then in the second half, he has an architectural illustration really to communicate some of the same things, but even to a deeper manner. And so Paul's saying we are servants. Even look at Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. That is Paul, that is Apollos, that is the apostle Peter. This is how you should regard us. This is important. He says, as servants of Christ. Now this term servant here is not the Greek word diakonos. It is actually the word hupertes. And, and I love this translation. The literal translation of this Greek word hupertes means subordinate rower, okay? That's what it means, subordinate rower. This is how you should consider, this is how you should regard the most important people in the church, Apollos and Paul and Peter, as subordinate rowers. They are not on the deck of the ship where the king is. They are not even rowers on the ship. They are subordinate rowers in the ship of the kingdom of God. This is how you to consider yourself and all who are servants of Christ. What this means 
is that if you are these men coming forward for elder and deacon, if you are elected elder of the year or deacon of the year, which doesn't exist, but if you're elected that, or if you become a famous writer and you sell out conferences and you're a great speaker, or, and this is much more likely, or if you spend countless hours of service to Christ's church as an under oarsman and your labor goes unnoticed and underappreciated by the people of God and the church. Don't forget your title. You are a servant of Christ. And Jesus says this, he says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duties. Our first title is servant. The second which is extremely important, is steward. Look at verse one. It says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice, stewards don't own anything. They are servants, they are slaves, but they get to steward the master's riches. And in this passage, he says they are, they are mysteries, plural. The mysteries of God are what, are what we are called to steward. And the mysteries of God, which is plural, means it's not just the good news of the gospel, but really it's the treasure of all of God's words, that we are called to steward this generously, liberally. Matter of fact, you can't get, give enough of it away. You're supposed to steward it liberally to all who will receive it. And even to those who won't receive it, we are called to steward this mystery, the, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the word of God. You know, as we pursue this 2020 and 2020 campaign, we are reminded that, that generous stewardship is difficult, that it is uncomfortable, that, it, that it, is, it is sometimes it costs us relationships. Sometimes it costs us our reputation. And so that's why Paul continues in verse two and he says this, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. Listen, as we steward the mysteries of God, as we tell people the good news of the gospel, as we tell them what the word of God says, which is, which is a treasure, which is, again, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold, as we steward this liberally, we have to remember that we cannot control the soil that receives it. We cannot control a person's heart. All that we can control is what verse two says, is be faithful. We must be faithful to steward it generously, to sow the seeds and let God give the growth. Servants and stewards, servants and stewards, servants and stewards. When I was in college, I worked at this camp called Canacuck. It was a Christian camp and they had this award every summer called the I'm Third Award. And it was for those who would put God first, others second, and themselves third. And they would always tell this story as they handed out the, uh, the award. The story goes like this, and it's a true story. It's a historic story. It says, it was the morning of June 7, 1958, and the Air National Guard's jet precision team called the Minutemen were flying in an air show at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base just outside Dayton, Ohio. 
For the Minutemen, this was just another show as they were happy to have clear skies and the morning smooth air and thousands of viewers down below to see the air show. But after a a routine maneuver, Captain John Ferrier's plane was rolling out of control. And he was in trouble. And seeing him headed right for a neighborhood, Colonel Williams gave the command over the microphone, bail out, Johnny, bail out. The Denver Press talks about this story, continues, says there was still plenty of time, still plenty of room for him to bail out. The colonel even issued the command twice more, bail out, Johnny, bail out. Each time he was answered by a blip of smoke. He grasped at the sense of it immediately. John Ferrier couldn't reach the mic button on the throttle because he had both hands tugging on the control stick that was locked full throttle right. But the smoke button was on the stick and he was answering the only way he could by squeezing to tell Williams that he couldn't let the airplane go into houses of the neighborhood. Captain Ferrier's saber jet hit the ground equidistance from four houses. There was hardly any place other than that one backyard garden where he could have hit without killing other people. Captain Ferrier, a great sacrifice to his own life, put himself third, put God first, others second, himself third. This is the calling that God has on our life. And so let me ask you, when you wake up in the morning, Who is on the forefront of your agenda? (laughs) If we're honest, I think there is this daily routine we have to go through to say, Lord, help me, help me, help me to put you first, to put others second, and to put myself third. This is what servants of Christ and stewards of the marvelous mysteries of God are called to do, to put God first, others second, and ourselves third. And so this is, these are our titles, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a chair stacker, a Sunday school worker, a nursery worker, whatever you are, we are servants and we are stewards of the marvelous, majestic mysteries of God. The second question is, what is our task? First, it is to know something, and then it is to do something. First, to know the temple of God. Remember, Paul is speaking, as he says earlier in this chapter, to immature Christians, Christians who became Christians but continued to live very worldly, and so they were messy. And yet Paul says this in verse 16. He says, do you not know? Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not remember? Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you, y'all, literally, in y'all. It it is true that, that the spirit dwells in us individually and individually we are the temple of the living God. Paul talks about this later in chapter six. But here in this passage, he is emphasizing the togetherness of the church, that together we are the temple of God and together the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This would have been earth-shattering for Jews in that day because they would have remembered and known about the temple that Solomon built. 
And, when, and when, the, when the Spirit of God dwelt within that temple, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, it will be on the screen behind me. And it says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, this is after they built it and put the Ark of the Covenant in it, it said, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Could you imagine being there and seeing this? How amazing would that be? And, and then it says something that I have never seen before. It's been in the Bible. I just have not seen it. And it is it is amazing. He says, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. In the Holy of Holies, there were no windows. It was a very physically dark place. And yet the Lord had said that he would dwell in thick darkness. And yet you know what is darker than the Holy of Holies? The hearts and souls of men. Our depravity to sin is darker than the darkest cave in the world. And yet God has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. God has said that he would tabernacle inside his people, abode within us, that his spirit would fill us with life and with light. And so Paul is confirming that no matter how ugly Christians are on the outside, they are the temple of God on the inside, both individually and collectively. And so she is precious to God. The church is precious to God because she is the temple of God. And then Paul gives this warning. In verse 17, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, talking about the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's almost as if Paul's saying, listen, you mess with the church, you mess with God. I love that part when, when, when Jesus appears to, to Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He never met Jesus. Paul was persecuting the church. And so if you persecute the church, you persecute Christ, you mess with Christ, you mess with the Father, and you don't want to get the, the horns of the bull, right? This is a reminder to us to not let petty, tangential issues rise to the point of division within the church. That we must do everything in our power to not only not destroy the church, but to unify the church. So first, we have to know that the church is the temple of God. But secondly, we have to build the temple of God, which is the church. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, like a foreman, you could think of it that way, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And then notice what Paul says here, let each one, that means everyone, all of us, take care how he builds upon it. You know, each of us have not only been made the temple of God and made a part of the temple of God, the church, all of us have called to be construction workers on the temple of God. This is a construction project which, which has all of us employed to construct on it. Now, how do we do this? Well, first he says, with Christ as the foundation. Verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
As a church planter in Corinth, Paul says in verse 10, he he doesn't say, I am the foundation. He says, I laid the foundation. And the foundation that he laid in Corinth for the church in Corinth is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Contrary to popular belief, the foundation of the church is not social justice. Contrary to popular belief, the foundation of the church is not just moralistic deism, a way to appease the old and correct the young. Contrary to popular belief, the foundation of the church is not a pastor or an elder or a deacon. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And that way, when any of us leave, whether we retire or whether we move on or whatever it might be, the church stands because Christ is the foundation of his church. Christ as a foundation must be the reason for why we pursue social justice. Christ as a foundation is the reason we must pursue a loving community. Christ as a foundation is why we must have elders and deacons to serve and steward within the church. We must build the temple of God upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, how do we build? We build with fireproof material. I know that sounds crazy, but that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage. He has in view the the, the temple, which, which they would have all seen and known about in Jerusalem or the temple of Solomon. And this is what he says, verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Notice each of these have a different amount of flammability to them. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, that word day is capitalized. Is it capitalized in your Bible? No? Some of you, yes? The reason why it's capitalized is because it's talking about the day when Christ returns. He says, for the day will disclose it, the flammability of your labors, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives because of flame-proof material, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, if it's flammable, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I had a friend few years ago who had this really old car and on the back of the car was this bumper sticker that simply said, this too shall perish. What are the flammable materials that we can build the church with? And what are the fireproof materials that we can build the church with? Well, I'll tell you, almost everything is flammable. Money will burn, food will burn, houses will burn. It's all going to be consumed by the fire. But there are those things that will withstand the refining fire of God and the day of the Lord. And those things which are eternal is God himself, the word of God, and the souls of men. You know, I think this point is particularly applicable to those who do diaconal ministry or mercy ministry. When someone comes to you with a need, it is simply tempting to offer to them kindling, isn't it? To just give them kindling. Here's food. Here's housing. Here's money, right? It's tempting just to give them kindling and think that you have done them a service. Now, don't get me wrong. When someone comes to you asking for food, asking for housing, asking for financial help, we should give generously. We should give wisely. But we must not forget to give to their greatest need. Their greatest need 
is to hear the word of God, the gospel of God, because their souls are eternal. This goes back to stewarding the marvelous mysteries of God generously. And if we don't accompany deeds with the word of God and the gospel of God, we are simply providing temporary relief as their souls perish. We must give to them the fireproof material of the word of God and the gospel of God. Finally, how do we build with wisdom from God? I won't go long into this because we've really covered this the past, I think six weeks now. But what we learn here is that we don't build the church through the wisdom of the world, but through the wisdom of God. Verse 18 says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The world says, do not think your religion is the only one that is true. The world says the Bible is outdated and it is archaic. The world says wholeness is found in accumulating created things and not in the creator. The world says if you want to build a megachurch, avoid the hard texts in the scripture. Preach what is popular and offend nobody and hold no one accountable. That is the wisdom of the world. But the Bible says Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. The Bible says that the Bible is not outdated. Rather, it is supreme wisdom. It is the wisdom of God given to us by his grace. The Bible says wholeness is not found in created things, but in the creator himself. The Bible says that we must declare to you the whole counsel of God, even if it offends you because it is for your good and it is the word of God. The Bible says we must build the church through the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. And so how must we build the temple of God with Christ as the foundation, with fireproof material, and with the wisdom of God, which is found in the word of God? One of my favorite new shows is a show called Building Off the Grid. And what happens is someone will buy this secluded property. And a lot of times they'll take the trees from that property or whatever it is to, to build this house off the grid. And I love watching this show. I'm not sure why, but it's kind of my dream to do this one day. I think it would be fun to do. And, uh, and so what they do is they first lay a foundation. And it's usually something that, that won't rot, at least not quickly. And so sometimes uh, it will be concrete pillars. Sometimes it will be steel pylons. Uh, they've even used stone. Sometimes, this is the craziest, they use plastic bottles because those don't disintegrate very quickly. And so they lay this foundation and then it will start building up the sides and they'll use wood or they'll use clay or they'll use other creative things. And then what happens in every single episode is that there is drama, right? There, there's no good show without drama. And so, so what happens is there will be scorching sun where it'll be like 100 degrees for a week straight and they will just be suffering under the sun. Or there will be torrential rains that come through or there will be snow that comes through. And it's so amazing because the people who start out so optimistic are so discouraged and they think, why in the world did we decide to do this? Were we crazy? And what usually happens is they then call in an expert. They call in help. They ask expert builders to come and say, hey, can you tell us, are we doing this correctly? What else do we do to make sure that this thing does not fall apart? 
church as servants of Christ and stewards of the glorious mysteries of God, we must build upon the foundation that will not rot and will not give way, Jesus Christ. And when it gets stormy, when it gets aggravating, when it gets tedious, we must not give up and we must call out to the master builder, the Lord God, and through his wisdom build his temple for his glory. And so what are our titles? Servants of Christ, stewards of the glorious mysteries of God. What is our task? Our task to know the temple of God, which is the church, and to build the temple of God with Christ as the foundation, flame-proof material, and wisdom from God through his word. Finally, and this is my favorite part, what is our treasure? You know, I don't have time to go in. Paul says, you know, if you do this well, you will be rewarded, you will be paid after. There's, just don't have time to do that. But I do want to focus on what our greatest treasure is, which is simply God. God is our greatest treasure. Verse 21, he says, so let no one boast in men like Paul or Apollos or Cephas, for all things are yours. What does Paul mean, all things? Everything. You are a servant, and yet everything is yours. How does that work? Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. What Paul is saying here is don't be enamored by servants. Don't be enamored simply by preachers that God has given to you. God has given you everything, all things God has given to you. What does that mean? You are a servant. What does it mean that God has given everything to you? Well, it means that God has given all of creation and all of history to show you the greatness of our God, to show you his glory, to show you his beauty, to show you his majesty, to show you his weightiness. God has given you everything to show you how great our God is. You know, when we were on the cruise, one of my favorite things, we were going down to the Bahamas and we got off at Nassau Island. And one of the things I most wanted to do was to go snorkeling because it doesn't work very well around here in Wisconsin. And so we got off the ship and we got hopped in a taxi and we went to this beach that was known for shallow water um, snorkeling. And I actually have a picture. This isn't my picture, but this is a picture. I think we have a picture up here. Jason, do we have a picture? There we go. This is at the beach that we were at, okay? And what you'll see here is there's all these amazing, cool things. There are these things that look like brains that were amazing. There are these blue fish, which were really pretty. There were um, there was also these little, these little fish that would go, they were like pencils, really long pencils that would go along the top. My son said they were barracudas. I don't know what they were for sure. But, um, but then there were these, these are my favorite. These are the yellow fish. And the yellow fish were so pretty. I mean, they just really popped out from everything else. And we would follow them around with our little GoPro camera and we would look at these little yellow fish. Do you know why God put little yellow fish in the Bahamas? For me. <laughs> For you. Because God has given all things to show the greatness of his glory. Don't just go to preachers to know his greatness. God's given you everything. 
I mean, I think so often we take this for granted, right? I mean, if there was an Aquaman who came up out of the water, he'd come to Green Bay and be like, look at this snow. Isn't this unbelievable? Look at, look at these trees. Look at the stars. Like, How great is the God who created this? And yet we just pass by every single day. God has given you all things to testify to his greatness. And it gets better, <laughs> believe it or not. Verse 23. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Do you hear this? The God who was at the beginning, who created the universe, the God who created the little yellow fish in the Bahamas, the God who created the stars above and sustains the universe, that God is the God to whom you belong. I don't mean to mix metaphors, but Annie has nothing on us. I mean, she had, she had Daddy Warbucks as her adoptive father. We have the God of the entire universe who is our father, who is our dad. And can I tell you what? You were very expensive. You were very costly. To adopt, you did not cost them $20,000, $50,000, $100,000. The adoption came at the cost of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who, get this, look at your outline. Jesus was the ultimate servant who came to serve all of us, to steward the mysteries of the goodness of God. He was the word in the flesh. He laid the foundation of the temple, the church. He is the foundation of the temple. He brought us the wisdom of God. And through the wisdom of God, God said, the only way I can, I can ransom my people is to give my son as a sacrifice in their place upon the cross. This is foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. So that God could adopt us as his children. And then on the third day, rose him from the dead to give us newness of life. The God of all creation has given us everything because he cherishes us, because we are his treasure. And because we are his treasure through Christ, God has become our greatest treasure. Let me end with this very quickly because we still got a ways to go. We're going to go a little long today. I'm sorry. In 1 Timothy 3, it talks about the qualifications of elders and deacons, and it says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is a qualification that God has given, um, not only because the home is the primary ministry that a man is called towards, but also because raising children is hard work. It's heartbreaking work. It is exhausting work. But we know for those who have endured, it is glorious work and it is work worthy of our diligence. Elders and deacons and congregants, the work of God that he has called us to, to build the temple of God is hard work. It is heartbreaking work. Sometimes it is exhausting work. But it is a glorious work that is worthy of our devotion and our diligence. It is worth all of the sweat, all of the blood, all of the tears, all of the sleepless nights. Because as we serve Christ's church, we treasure our God who treasures his church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. May we be servants and stewards, servants and stewards within your church for your glory. Help us to treasure you as you have treasured us. And may we build your temple, the church, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.